Quite a few years ago, I had a gal tell me that I was probably the greatest preacher she'd ever heard. My first thought was, I must be the only preacher you have ever heard. In fact, I began to tell her some podcasts that I listened to, some pastors I really enjoyed learning from. And she says, yeah, 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 I've heard some of them. But really, I learned more from you than from anyone else. You know, throughout my time of doing ministry and, and, and preaching, teaching, I, I've had several people tell me that how much they, they learn from me, they appreciate me, what God's been teaching them through the, the scriptures to the word. And, and it's really, really, you know, it, it, it is moving. I, I'm not a big words of affirmation person. So when someone just says, hey, you did a good job, it doesn't sink in. But when someone like says, hey, here's how God used your message to help me, then I feel really honored. Then, then I get excited. And, and some of you have been really generous in, in giving positive feedback of just what God's doing in you and, and how much you're learning. But in the midst of all of that kind of positive affirmation, there have been some negative and critical comments and feedback. I remember when Riverwood was in our pre-launch stages, uh, there was a family that got really, really excited about our new church plant. They, they had wondered about, does Waverly need a new church? So when they heard about us, they, they wanted to come and, and partner up with us. And they got involved with our kind of home Bible study. They, they started to invite some people to, to come and check it out. They, they were helping us with our preview gatherings. And then a few months in, uh, just a couple months out from when we were getting ready to launch, you could just sense a distance. They kind of pulled back. And so I finally had a chance to sit down with the husband. And as we're sitting there, he starts saying all of these really positive things about me and Leanne. Have you ever had that moment where someone just like, oh, you're great at this and you do this so well. And you can just tell they're setting you up because they're trying to soften the blow. And the right cross blow from him was, Aaron, you're just not a very good preacher. So in my short time of ministry, I have been told I'm one of the greatest preachers someone's ever heard and told, yeah, you're not very good. In fact, you, you really stink so much that we don't want to be a part of your church. Now, the one, the positive, I basted the glow of that for maybe like 10 seconds because I, I knew it was ridiculous. But even when someone else has said, you know, you really are doing a great job. I remember that for like 10 minutes. But the negative comment, I think it took me six months before I finally kicked that guy off my mental committee. Like, as I would work on a message, guess what I was thinking about? Have you ever had that? You could have all these positive comments. And that one negative is what sticks with you. I'm not the only pastor who has face this. Just this past week, I participate, and I have to use the word participate very loosely because I rarely go in, but it's an online group of pastors, and I just happened to, to check this last week, and on Tuesday, one of the guys said, hey, here's something that happened to me. On Sunday, he gets done preaching, and at the end of the service, a guy comes up to the front of their church in tears and begins to say how God used the message to convict him, and it was just revolutionary. Then as the pastor is driving home, he gets two texts telling him what a powerful message it was, thanking him for bringing it and delivering it. And then Monday morning, he gets up and he checks his email and he has three emails saying, that was probably the best sermon I have ever heard. Here's how God used it. Thank you so much. 
Well, another thing that he does on Mondays, he said, is that he kind of will just check in with people. Like, hey, how you doing? How'd things go here? And there was one individual in his church that he realized he hadn't seen in a while. And so he thought, I, he'd just give him a call. So he calls him and goes to voicemail. So he just leaves a voicemail basically saying, hey, haven't seen you in a while. Just, just wondering how you're doing. Two minutes later, he gets a text from this guy. And here's what the text says. Thanks for the call. I know your heart is in the right place. And I say this with fatherly tenderness in my voice, but you sort of sounded like you do when you are preaching. Flat, without depth, without passion, and without sincerity. It's like you were just playing the part. Ouch! Like happy Pastor's Appreciation Month there. You know, just the sting. And then the guy goes on to post, says, why is it that I could have these six overwhelmingly positive things about the message and this one thing just drag me down? And, and this is not a pastor thing, by the way. I, I know of authors who have made the mistake of going into Amazon and checking the reviews. And there could be a whole ton of four and five star reviews. And yet what they carry with them are the one or two negative critical reviews that just tear them down. Maybe you've had this, you know, maybe in school you, you, you've done a class project and a couple of your classmates say, hey, that was really good. Your teacher gives you an A on it, but you come home and you end up telling your family and your dad looks at it and says, you could do so much better. Or, or maybe, you know, you, you worked really, really hard to, to make a meal for the family, or maybe it's a house project you've been working really, really hard on and, and everyone else says, oh, this is delicious or wow, you're doing a really good job, but your spouse just says one little slight comment like, yeah, it just takes you a little too long. And that's what we remember. And, and sometimes it doesn't even have to be a negative comment. It could just be something really confusing. Like you go out on a date and you're just getting to know this boyfriend or girlfriend and you're just, you know, starting it out and everything goes really, really well. The date was a lot of fun. But during the course of the date, they said just one kind of odd thing. And guess what you think about for the next 24 hours? You don't think about the fun you had. You're stewing on that one odd comment, wondering what kind of a person is this? You see, the reason I'm talking about this is today as we get to First John, we're going to come to chapter five, and we're going to hear him say a lot of the same stuff we've already been hearing. If you've been with us during any of this journey through First John, you're going to hear some stuff that we've already heard before. But in the midst of it, he's going to say a couple of confusing things. In fact, this week as I was working on my message, Leanne was asking me, so how's your message going? And I confessed to her, I'm struggling here on a couple parts. I I'm tripping over this because how do I go about explaining this? We're going to see a couple of those thises this week. I mean, this morning. Then it hit me. Don't miss the forest for the trees. What I don't want to have happen today is for us to get caught up in these kind of confusing things. These, these kind of, you know, makes us wonder, makes us begin to really doubt. And we carry that one little thing out with us and we miss the bigger picture. And so we today, we're not going to ignore these other parts. We're going to do what we can to make sure that we capture the biggest part. That we get the main message. So that when we walk out that door, we know what John wanted us to hear. Because God wants us to hear it. Because it has the potential to revolutionize your life. 
And I don't want us just getting caught up in these kind of negative, confusing parts. Instead, we'd walk out with clarity, knowing exactly what God calls us to do. So as we get ready to jump into 1 John, would you join me in prayer? So Heavenly Father, I just pray right now that you would, uh, you would work powerfully. That as we look at a couple of these difficult little passages, kind of, kind of confusing, that we wouldn't get hung up on it in such a way that we end up missing the bigger story. Because God, you love us. And you want us to show our love for you by loving others. And so Lord, I pray that that would come through powerfully. And that I pray you'd help me to, to the explanations that I've tried to come up with, that, that you'd help teach with, with clarity, but that ultimately it wouldn't be about me. It would really be about you. And we would just walk out with the true sense of what you want us to hear today. So I ask you to be our teacher this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. All right, go ahead and open up your Bible to 1 John. If you have forgot your Bible, I've got it on the screen for you, but I just encourage you, if you want a paper Bible, stop by the Give and Grow table after, pick one up, make it your everyday Bible. Or if you've got a smartphone, pull that out, use the Bible on there. If you don't have one on there, download it. Uh, let's just all get into the scriptures. All right, we are going to be in 1 John. Uh, we are finishing it up today. We're looking at chapter 5. Uh, we're not going to look at the whole entire thing. We are going to look at some key sections of it, though. So let's let's begin with 1 John 5, and we're going to do the first five verses. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this, we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And who is it that overcomes the world? Except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Uh, just over a year ago, I heard a TED Talk by a guy by the name of Tom Wujek, or at least I'm guessing that's how to pronounce his name. And his TED Talk was about how to make toast, which is really interesting because TED stands for Technology, Education, and Design, and it's known for a lot of famous presentations. And so to hear someone talk about how to make toast is interesting. But it really wasn't like how to make toast. It was an exercise that he'd come up with with groups. He wanted groups to realize that you can accomplish more together than just by yourself. And the exercise he came up with was to hand everyone their own post-it notes and ask them to draw out pictures of how to make toast. And so everyone takes the time to do that. And then what he does is you bring everything together and you start moving the post-it notes and you start realizing, oh, I kind of forgot that. Oh yeah, that should go in here. And you start working it out and you realize we can do more together than I could just do by myself. But I think his exercise shows us something else. I mean, for, for instance, if I handed out post-it notes to each of you and you began to do this exercise, drawing pictures of toast, we all would have in our mind the end goal. We want to see the bread pop up out of the toaster and it's now kind of crispy. It becomes toast. But some of you, you would start your process with the toaster. Others of you, you'd start by getting the bread and saying, okay, we got to open up the, the, the package and get it out. Some of you would be overachievers and you'd start with the grocery store, all right? Or, or you'd, I, I did this exercise with someone, they actually drew wheat, all right? They, they drew wheat and I was like, okay, yeah, brown noser, you, you're, you're way better than the rest of us. 
But the interesting thing is, we'd all start at these different places, but we all have this end goal. And the way we think is, okay, how can I linearly work it out step by step getting to this end goal? As Americans in this Western world, we think in a very linear fashion. We tend to think step by step by step. You buy the bread at the store, you open up the package, you put the bread in the toaster, you put the little you know, lever, the plunger down, and then it pops up and we've accomplished our goal step by step by step. Another example, getting dressed. Like we, we all know that it, there's kind of a step-by-step process. Like you can't just jumble it all up. Like you can't put your jeans on before your underwear, right? It just doesn't work. First of all, you'd look really strange and it also really feel really strange, all right? We all know you gotta do this step first. But sometimes we take it a little too far. Sometimes we start thinking, a certain way is the right way, the only way. For instance, do you have to put your underwear on before your socks? As some of you are going, yeah, but really, do you have to? Like, do you have to put on your jeans before your shirt? Like, do you have to put on the shoes and have them tied before you put on your coat? Like, if you think about it, no, you don't have to. Now, some of you, you're going, but that's weird. Like, like everyone should know you put on your jeans and then you put on your shirt, right? You just look strange otherwise, you know? And others of you are going, I don't see the big deal. I just had a, a moment uh, last week with my son, Salem. Salem, I probably should have told you I was going to share the story. <laughs> I apologize. You don't look bad though, all right? Salem is doing some homework on his Chromebook. He's got uh, YouTube up and he's got a song playing. And it is the song of In the Hall of the Mountain King. It's this famous orchestral piece. Many of us hear it, it, you know, near Halloween. It just has that kind of a vibe and feel to it. However, it was a remake. It was redone into a piano piece. Now, if you think about it, if you're, if you're familiar with the song, it's so big, you can't really truly replicate it on piano. But because this was a digital piano, someone wasn't truly playing it, you could do the full orchestral thing on a piano, because it's just digital. So, I mean, I only have 10 fingers, so I can only play that many notes at about the same time. This one, because it's digital, you could play 40 notes at the same time. And so that's what they did. Well, Salem, just a couple days before, had played for me another song that was in, that had a piano on the, the video, and it was called Rush B. And as I was listening to him do this, uh, you know, In the Hall of the Mountain King, I thought, oh, I see similarity between them. So I made a comment. I said, oh, they redid In the Hall of the Mountain King in the style of Rush B. And Salem says, no, they didn't. I go, well, yes, they did. Like, there's a keyboard at the bottom. The little colored lines are falling down, playing the notes. And, and there becomes all this stuff. And he's going, dad, no, no, it's not. And like, Leanne is there. And Leanne's actually on my side. You know, I'm thinking, like, I'm a music major. I know music. I know these things. These are clearly in the same style. He's like, No. I was thinking in terms of category. To me, they were in similar styles. So I was correlating, bringing them together. Salem was thinking in terms of timeline. Because it turns out that the In the Hall of the Mountain King was actually put out first, that version. And then later someone did the Rush B. So if anything, he's thinking, no, Rush B is done in the style of this. For him, it was about time. For me, it was about categories. And because I'm thinking one way, I'm looking at him like, dude, you're weird. You're crazy. It's obvious. And he's looking at me like, dude, you're weird. You're crazy. It's obvious. 
So often when we think of something in our own fashion, step by step by step, in our linear fashion, if someone else has it in a different order, we think they're weird, we think they're wrong. And I think sometimes when we read First John, we don't quite resonate with the way he thinks because he just keeps coming back over and over and over and over to these same things. And us, with our modern-day Western mindset, we're thinking step by step by step. Thinking like, John, you already said love God. You said love others. Now let's move on. Like, what do I need to do next? But John is not a Western-minded, linear-thinking individual. He is an ancient Jew who grew up in the Middle East, and he thinks in a circular fashion. And what he's trying to do is to work around and around and around to make his point. Because to him, it isn't necessarily getting from point A to point B to point C. It's wanting us to see that point A leads to point B. And oh yeah, point B also leads to point A. Just look at verse 1 with me. 1 John 5, 1, John says that everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. So point A is that Everyone who's basically been born of God, all right, all the Jesus followers, all right, point A leads to point B, that they should love who else has been born of the Father, all right? So point A, you love God, leads to point B, you love others. Then notice what he says in verse 2. By this, we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. So there in verse 2, he's saying point A is we know we love these, these people, the other children of God, leads to point B when we love God the Father. So, so wait a second. Is it point A, loving God leads to point B, loving others? Or is it loving others leads to loving God? And John would just look at us and go, yeah. See, in John's thinking, if you understand the gospel, you realize that you were a sinner separated from God because of your sin. But that God loving you so much because he created you sends his son, Jesus, to come to earth, to die in our place, to take our penalty for us so that sin could be forgiven and we could come into a relationship with God. And when we understand that, that fills us so much with love and we see the incredible heart of God, we now want to obey his commands. Because when God says, here's what I want you to do, we don't go, oh, that's kind of mean and cruel. We're like, well, yeah, of course I want to do that because we see the love God has for us. And so we want to obey his commands. Well, one of the commands that God has given his people is to love your neighbor as yourself, to love others. And so, okay, so that's one of our commands. We go and we love others. Well, as we're loving others, we're now being like Jesus. For Jesus himself said that he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. His heart was for others, not just to get, it was to give. So when we start loving others and fulfilling this command, we're now being like Jesus. Well, Jesus is fully devoted to the Father. He's fully in love with God because he is part of the Trinity, the Godhead. And so when we start acting like Jesus, we start doing what Jesus does and value what Jesus does. And that means we start loving God. And as we love God, we want to keep his commands. And as we keep his commands, we love others. And as we love others, we start loving God. And you start seeing the circle. It's kind of like the Lion King, the circle of life, except it's the true king's circle of love. And that's what John invites us into. Jump into the circle. Let this gospel change your life so that you will see the beauty and power of Jesus. Seeing that he died on the cross for you. And that means you can now trust God. So when God gives you a command, 
You don't have to be hesitant. He's not trying to rob you of joy. He's actually doing this for your good. And so you start to fulfill the commands, one of which is to love others. And yes, that means you're around some difficult people that you've got some weirdos you work with at work. You've got some, you know, people in your extended family. Like it's difficult, but you love them. You start giving your life for them. You start valuing them. You start putting their needs before your own. And as you do, you start becoming more and more like Jesus. And then in the process, you start loving God and you understand the heart of God even more. Remember years ago when uh, we got ready to have our first child, a friend of mine told me, Aaron, once you have this child, you will understand God as a father better than ever. And I'm thinking, are you kidding? Like, I love God so much. Ah, maybe that was your experience, you know, but I, I, I'm, I'm great. And he was right. To hold that helpless child and realize she did nothing to earn my love. I just simply loved her because of who she is. And sure enough, I began to understand the heart of the father more than ever before, simply by loving others. And it helped me to love God. This is what John wants us to get. He invites us into the circle to love him and to love others, to love him and to love others, and just get caught up in this. That's why I don't want you walking out of here being distracted by these couple of confusing parts because I don't want you getting off that circle. So here are the the potentially distracting parts. The first one is down there in verse 6. Join me in uh, 1 John 6. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the spirit is the one who testifies because the spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his son. As I was reading through that this week, kind of looking at it going, what is John getting at? Like, what's up with this water and this blood? And the word testify kept jumping out at me. And it started to dawn on me. Imagine that Jesus is having to go to court. And they're here to try to figure out, is he guilty of being the son of God? Or is he innocent and he's not the son of God? So Jesus comes in, he sits down on the defendant's table, and the lawyers start calling forth witnesses. One of the witnesses they call up is the Spirit. Now, the Spirit here is referring to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is part of the Trinity. It has been in relationship with God the Father and God the Son since eternity past. So the Holy Spirit sits down in the, in the you know, witness stand, and the lawyer is like, do you know this man, Jesus? Holy Spirit says, yeah, that's Jesus, the Son of God, known him forever. Okay, some of you got my joke, all right? It was weak, I know. But the Spirit testifies. Yeah, that, that's the Son of God. Then the blood. This would refer to the cross. John's already told us back in chapter 1 that it is the blood that forgives us of our sin. And so the only person who can truly forgive sin is God because our sin is against him. So he's the only one who can truly forgive it. And so when Jesus goes to the cross, this is God forgiving us of our sin by taking the penalty himself. And so the blood testifies that, yes, this is the son of God because only God can remove our sin. What's up with this water? 
Uh, years ago, I had an opportunity to preach through John chapter 3, uh, the famous iconic verse, John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. Well, right before that very famous verse, you know, the, the one you see at the, the ball games, the guy holding up John three sixteen. well, just before that, Jesus is having a conversation with Nicodemus. Nicodemus, this, this scholar, Jewish rabbi, comes to Jesus in the middle of the night because he doesn't want anyone to know. And he's trying to figure out, Jesus, are you really from God? Because you do some amazing miracles, but you're teaching. I don't get it. I don't understand. So he's there to try and figure it out. He's investigating. And in the course of the conversation, Jesus says, you have to be born again. And Nicodemus is like, what, 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 what do you mean born again? Like, I need to crawl back up into my mother's womb. I'm a little big to do that. What, what do you mean? I'm confused. And Jesus says, you must be born of water and of spirit. Now, I had heard originally that like that water was baptism. But as I studied it, I started realizing Jesus is saying, no, you have to be born physically. Because when a woman is getting ready to give birth, the amniotic fluid, the, the sack breaks. And we call it that her water broke. And so you have to first be born of water, come into this world, be alive. But now you need to be born of the Spirit. So knowing that John wrote that in John 3, when I came to this passage here in 1 John, I'm thinking, okay, this is what he's referring to. But as I studied it, it just wasn't making sense. And then I found a couple of commentators that said, this is referring to the baptism that Jesus went through with John the Baptist. And that's when it made sense. Because Jesus goes down to the Jordan River. His cousin, John the Baptist, is like, whoa, what are you doing here? Like, I should be baptized by you. And Jesus says, no, we're going to do this to fulfill all righteousness. And Jesus walks into the water and is baptized. And as soon as he comes up out of the water, it says the heavens parted like the Holy Spirit, like the form of a dove descends upon Jesus. And a voice rings out that says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. And to John, this is another moment of evidence to convict Jesus as the son of God. And if that isn't enough, John tacks on one more. He says, God's testimony is greater than man's. And to me, that is a significant moment for John to say. Because John lived with Jesus for three years. He hung out with him. He saw him eat. He was there when they walked, you know, walking, when they're waking up in the morning, when they're, you know, just being together. And he saw Jesus do these miracles. He heard Jesus teach. And he saw Jesus die. And then he saw the resurrected Christ. So if anyone has a testimony that would say, yeah, Jesus is the son of God, it would be John. And yet John is saying, God's testimony is even greater. So to John, Jesus is the son of God. And for some of us, what could be really confusing now, if we really think about it, it means, wow, God loved us so much and he kept pointing at Jesus through his baptism, through the cross, just through the Holy Spirit, saying, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. Follow him. And now we see the heart of God through Christ. And guess what we want to do? <laughs> we want to love God. And as we love God, we want to keep his commands. And as we keep his commands, we love others. And you see the invitation into the circle. So in my mind, potential distraction number one actually leads me right back into John's main point. But potential distraction number two, I'm not quite there yet. That's down in verse 14 through uh, 17. John starts shifting to this talk of prayer. And the first two verses are going to be like, oh, okay, yeah, good. L look at it. Verse 14. 
And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. Like, I don't know about you, but I find that actually reassuring. That like, Jesus is my avenue to God. I'm invited now to talk to God. And if I ask anything according to his will, he hears me. And so like the moment we just had a little bit ago about praying to God, yeah, there's some difficult things going on in our nation and in our lives. And yet I know I'm going to be heard by God as I seek to pray according to his will. But then John gets confusing. Verse 16, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. Now, if you have grown up in the church or you've spent some considerable amount of time studying Christian doctrine, or maybe you just hung out at Riverwood long enough, you have heard it taught what the Apostle Paul says in the book of Romans, that all sinners deserve death. For the wages of sin is death, is how we've heard it. And now John is saying, yeah, but there is sin that does not lead to death. And I don't know about you, but that kind of leaves me going, what is going on? Because when you really start studying the scriptures and you, and you get into Genesis, you see that God creates Adam and Eve in his image, yet through in Genesis 3, they disobey God. And so the image within them is broken. And God warned them that if you break my only commandment, you will die. And while they didn't die immediately physically, as we study, we start realizing they died spiritually. The image within them was broken. The relationship with God was severed. And now they are spiritually dead. And so we know that the wages of sin is death. And Adam and Eve, they were designed to live on earth all the time, but they eventually died. And all of us eventually die. So when John sits there and says, yeah, but there is a sin that does not lead to death, it leaves you wondering, like, okay, so what does he mean? And so I started going and consulting commentaries. A couple of scholars, they, they said that um, what he's referring to is something like what happened in Acts chapter 5. In, in Acts 5, the, the church is brand new. There's all these exciting things that have been happening. And, and in Acts chapter 2, towards the end, we see that there are people who were selling off land because they didn't need it. It was just excess. So they're selling it off to bring the proceeds to help those who were in need so that no one was going hungry. Everyone had a place to stay. Everyone had clothes on their back. Like they were just all serving and loving it, being together. So and saying, you know what? I don't need this. I'm going to sell this off and use this to help bless others. Well, there was a couple named Ananias and Sapphira as they watched all this going on and they saw how people were going, wow. What sacrifice? In fact, right at the end of chapter four, a guy by the name of Joseph, but he was known as Barnabas, the son of encouragement. He did the same. He sold off some land and, and everyone was like, whoa, did you see what Barnabas did? Man, it's so encouraging. And then Ananias and Sapphira are thinking, man, we'd like some of that attention. So they had some land they didn't need and they went and they sold it off. But rather than just bringing all of it, they're like, you know what? Let's just keep some for ourselves." So they, they take a portion of it and they, they keep it. That wasn't the sin. If they'd wanted, they could have come forth and said, hey, we sold our land for this much. We needed some of this to help take care of ourselves. But please, would you use the rest to help others? It would not have been a problem. But instead, they come before the apostle and they said, we sold off the land. Here's what we sold it for. And God kind of clues Peter in. And Peter asks, is that what you sold it for? 
And Ananias is standing there saying, yeah, this is the full amount. Peter says, Ananias, why are you trying to lie to God? And then to the shock and horror of everyone, Ananias immediately died. A few hours later, Sapphira comes in. She has no idea what's happened to her husband. Peter asks her the same question. She gives the same lie, and she too dies. Really scares the church. The church is like, oh no, what's going on? And, and word begins to ripple. And these commentators here in 1 John are saying, that's a sin that leads to death. But then another commentator saying, no, 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 no. Based on some of the, the context clues we have in here, this is not talking about like a, an immediate physical death. It's, it's referring to the, the spiritual death we all face. That it's, it's really about the rejection of the gospel. That is the sin that leads to death. And so it's just saying, so if someone tries to tell you that this is about a, a physical death, an immediate physical death, no, they're, they're wrong. Don't listen to them. <laughs> and these are like both commentators that have a deep reverence for the scripture. They love Jesus deeply and dearly. I think they're probably all teach at seminaries. And yet they're saying, uh, no, they, they disagree. And I just found myself like, what in the world do we say? What, what can I do? And that's when I was reminded, hey, you know what, what John's trying to get across here. You know what God wants you to hear. Don't let this distract you. Because when you put this in its context, this is about prayer. And when you love God and you're wanting to keep his commands and doing so means loving others, one of the ways you love others is to pray for them. Yeah, we pray for them when they're, they're sick, when they're struggling with something, when they're looking for a job, but also we could pray for people who are struggling with sin. When we know someone's just being beat by an addiction. When we see someone just not being faithful to their spouse or their kids, when we see someone doing unethical things, we can pray for them. And sometimes that is what we need to do to love them. And so as we walk out of here today, I want us to get caught in the circle of love. I want us to love God and to do so means to keep his commands and to keep his commands means to love others. And as we love others, it just helps us to love God all the more. That's what we need to hear. That's what we need to remember. That's what we need to live. But I also realize that if I'm going to be truly faithful today to do what I know I need to teach, I can't stop there. Because it is possible that there's someone here today that does not know Christ. Like, you've been to church a bunch. You've maybe heard a lot of this. But it's dawning on you. You are not born of God. And so what I want to do is I want to invite you into the circle of love, knowing that this could change your life and it could also change the lives of those around you. And to give you this invitation, I want to use John's words that he has already given us. John first invites you to confess your sin. Chapter 1, verse 9, he says that if we confess our sins, he, Jesus, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Elsewhere, he also tells us that God loved us before we could ever love him. This is the evidence of it. As we confess our sins, God forgives us of those sins. And what is it that can forgive us of those sins? It's Jesus through the cross. Down in chapter 2, verse 2, he says, He, Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. That means that Jesus can pay it off. He can take care of it. The, the record that God says, here's what you've done wrong, this and this and this and this and this, it's wiped clean. 
Jesus is the propitiation, the atonement. It, it washes us clean. And when that moment happens, when we place our faith in Jesus, confessing our sins, knowing that he has paid off our sin, we become a child of God. John says in, in chapter 3, verse 1, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. So when you place your faith in Jesus, your identity changes. You go from being separated from God, being an orphan spiritually, to now being adopted by God. You become his kid. You become his son, his daughter. And when you become his child, you're now invited to allow God to begin to change your character to become more and more like Jesus. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. When you put your faith in Christ, you have this new identity. And out of that new identity, now you're loving others. And guess what? You're now caught up in the circle of love. So I'd like to just take a moment to pray. And even if you've been coming to Riverwood for weeks or months or years, and you're now sensing God convicting you, saying, I want you to follow me. Let's just take this moment and accept God's invitation into the circle. So Heavenly Father, I pray right now that you would minister to us, that you would lead us, you would guide us. You would guide us to make much of Christ, to see him as being crucified, to see him for who he truly is. God, help us to accept this invitation. I pray right now for anyone that has not done this, that right now they would just take a moment to confess their sins. And God, we want to take a moment to thank you for the forgiveness of those sins through Christ. And God, Hear us as we tell you that we want to accept this responsibility to fulfill your commandments and to love others. Jesus, we want to say thank you. Thank you for what you did for us through the cross. Thank you for going and paying our penalty so that our sin could be forgiven and we could be made free. And you invite us to become a son or a daughter of the Most High God. Thank you for changing our identity. We're no longer these sinners. We are now saints. That, that we, we are no longer spiritual orphans. We, we have a, a heavenly daddy. We are no longer spiritually dead, but we're made spiritually alive. We no longer have to live just trying to focus on self. We can live life trying to focus on loving others. And so that's why we say thank you. God, I just pray for anyone right now that is really struggling with spiritual doubt. 
I pray, Father, that you would help them to seek after you. You begin to answer their questions. That in the midst of the questions, that they would see the avalanche of your love. And they would see so much of who you are and what you've already done. And that these few confusing things shouldn't keep us from the overwhelming truth that you are real, you love us, you gave your life for us, and you call us into your family to follow you. God, I pray for our world. I pray for our communities. I pray for our, our relationships, our people around us. They are hurting, they are lost, they are broken, they have spiritual questions, and they need you. So God, while I want to see us love one another well, because that's what you call us to, I pray you'd also help us to love those who need you. Because Jesus, you came not to be served, but to serve and to give your life for us. And you now call us to go and do likewise. To not go into our workplaces, to go into our neighborhoods, to go to school, seeking just to get and be served. You're sending us there to love. So God, help us to put love into action. It wouldn't be an emotion that we want to feel. It's instead something that you call us to. So Jesus, help us to keep our eyes on you. Help us to keep the focus where it needs to be. We pray it in your name. Amen.